Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of Canine's Talking Sense. And before we get to the next interview I have, which will be a really good one, especially for puppy people, um, I wanted to kind of talk about some different things like I do over uh, the past couple episodes before the episode begins, kind of hit some things and talk about what's going on. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is something I see that happens fairly frequently on social media is whenever somebody is talking about marker training or use of clicker, there's this argument of indirect and direct reward. And what people are basically trying to bring out is the difference of somebody delivering the toy or food at the source of the odor versus somebody who gives a signal and the dog may come back to the handler for that toy or food. So they'll define that as indirect because obviously it's not directly happening at the source of odor. However, what we can can say is, thanks to Ivan uh, Pavlov and classical conditioning, what we do know is that condition reinforcer, that signal, which is really the marker of the bridge, creates a physiological response that is basically the same as that item being present. So bell equaled food, and those that use some type of bridge or marker, whether it be a word or a clicker, it creates the same thing uh, to the dog because in most cases when this is happening, those that are using it in detection, it's a terminal bridge or it's the release marker. So the dog is having the same physiological response um, or similar as when the toy or food is delivered. And what I'm trying to get at is it isn't this direct or indirect aspect. Basically, when both are happening, the dog is reacting accordingly. Good training is good training. Bad training is bad training. And I always say, and many other people say the same thing, you get what you reinforce. So it's important, obviously, those that do bridge or marker training, that you know for sure what you are using your signal for and what that signal condition reinforcer, what it's conveying to the dog. And that's the same thing for those that do direct, you know, uh, good training is good training, bad training is bad training. One of the things I wanted to bring up, though, those that 
uh, do quite frequently, uh, rewarding at source, a lot of them have the physical marker. And the physical marker, uh, in many cases, is when that handler steps behind the dog so that way they can deliver the reward without being seen, per se, um, and helping that dog maintain the focus as that reward's delivered over their head, in some cases at their head, depending how good your aim is. The physical cue, one is which is, like I said, standing behind. The other one is, and you'll see this a lot of videos, and pay attention, the handler or trainer will come up and pet the dog while they're staring at and focused at the what is perceived to be the source location of that odor. And that petting or that touching is a antecedent, which means technically in some cases how it's going to be done here, a bridge to the next thing that was going to happen is delivery of rewards. So you'll see uh, trainers or handlers come in, step in, pet, pet, walk back, and then deliver reward. Or pet, pet, walk back, go back forward, pet, pet, or pet, and then deliver the food or deliver the toy, or in some cases even food, uh, to the dog. So when people, again, get into that argument of direct versus indirect, what they're, all they're meaning is where the reward's at. However, to the dog, both circumstances technically are direct. So, and then those that take the argument that they don't do a bridge or marker system, really what they're saying is they may not use an audible one. Uh, they may not obviously use a clicker or a word or what have you, but they are still doing a signal that precedes them delivering the reward. So we don't have to argue these points uh, and debate it so heavily on social media. Good training is good training. Bad training is bad training. And we all should be focusing on various ways to share this information because there's more than one way, as we all say, to skin a cat. And as long as the training is clear to the dog and you are reinforcing the desired aspects of your training, whether you are giving a physical antecedent or an audible one, both are happening. So I just wanted to take a moment to kind of cover that. On another side note, uh, there's another podcast that's actually uh, got some great interviews on it, Conservation Canine. Conservation Canine is a podcast, and it's definitely got its niche for the Conservation Canine handlers, but I wanted to give a shout out to the podcast, uh, and they did a good interview with my good friend, Dr. Nathan Hall, and Dr. Hall does a great uh, segment on there talking about research that they, that they have done recently, um, and I will bring Nathan on this podcast to talk about that more in depth, and I'm going to ask some questions that weren't covered uh, on the uh, Conservation Canine podcast. But if you get a chance, and of course you like podcasts, go check out the Conservation Canine podcast. It's got some good stuff on there. In addition to that, I just got back from Huntsville, Alabama, doing a canine cognition seminar. I uh, had a lot of fun, and I wanted to cover, um, you know, for those that have heard about the cognition seminars, um, what people take away. And the reason why I do these uh, cognition seminars is it's not really that cognition is so new, because it's not new, but what we apply in some of the tests that 
I specifically do are designed for those that work dogs, uh, both dual purpose dogs and dogs that are single purpose detection dogs. These series of tests, these specific ones, just help us understand our dog better. And I, you know, people always say, trust your dog. And for me, the cognition part is I know my dog. And the better I know my dog, the better I train my dog, and the better I trust my dog. So the cognition tests help us just kind of know that dog better in front of me. Um, And the great takeaways I had watching a lot of the search and rescue handlers uh, from the Northern Alabama Search and Rescue that conducted this, as well as the Huntsville Police uh, Canine Unit, the couple guys that came out from that program, was the takeaways that they got to see was some things they definitely knew about their dog, but a whole lot more they took away of, wow, okay, there really is importance for me, for this dog, to only do a couple of repetitions. Because as they got to see, when the test required it gets to five or six repetitions, the dogs, certain particular dogs, would overload because of the constant uh, process of the test. And as the test progressed, the dog did worse, and it was only because of the stimulation and arousal from the test and the process of the test of showing the dog the item and then stepping away and hiding it and putting it out uh, created a dog that um, became mentally inflexible, and the learning process kind of stopped because they were too focused or too uh, motivated because the item and the repeated intro of that item shows that. And that's a direct correlation that they can put into their training and go, oh, wow, you know what? Yeah, three or four reps, and I go past three or four reps, my dog gets a little you know, overly excited, or because it's found it two or three times, that stimulation takes that dog to a different level. So that was one of the takeaways. Uh, the other takeaway is laterality, whether your dog is right brain or left brain. And how to apply that specifically to search work uh, is important because in many cases, we might be making that lefty or righty in that dog when all we have to do is adjust to that dog and all of a sudden they'll search even better because they have the ability to do it the natural way that they want to do it. So uh, it's those takeaways and more. And again, those that are interested in learning these cognitive tests, uh, you can visit my website and you'll see the various uh, seminars coming out uh, in various uh, parts of the United States where I'll be going to to do these cognition testing And if you're interested in having me out to your area to do cognition testing, just contact me, Cameron, at FordK9.com. And that goes for actually all of the mobile classes. Uh, My other big one that's kept us busy is Odor Pays, talking about uh, utilizing uh, the proper sequence of delayed conditioning to really drive home the point to the dog that odor is the key. Odor is the linchpin to everything else, and just by applying delayed uh, conditioning techniques, you are really going to drive home that point to that dog that odor first and odor first only is what leads to the process of getting reinforcement. And of course, we add other steps into that, which is your behavior, your indication, so on. So um, whether it be odor pays or the canine cognition, 
Uh, you're interested in any of those, contact us uh, at that email, Cameron at FordK9.com. And then outside of that, we've been finishing up some uh, our handler schools here in uh, Las Vegas, finishing up some bomb dogs and some drug dogs that have been from agencies out of town and some agencies here in town. Uh, and those that have been following my social media now see we have two new puppies, Chip and Rip. And Chip is named because he's going to be later on a electronics detection dog. And since he's the primary one that I'll be raising and training, his name goes hand in hand with my Labrador, which is my firearms detection dog, Gamble. So gambling Chip, get it? And then Rip is the one that uh, our trainer Krista will be uh, raising. And he will be a more forensic type human remains detection dog specifically used for criminal investigations and things like that. So her dogs are named Roush, Red, and now the puppy named Rip. Rip came out of R.I.P. And of course, there's a popular character that those that watch Yellowstone uh, know the character named Rip. So had a little tongue in cheek name, but also works well with what he does. Um, so stay tuned because I'll be posting various videos uh, and pictures of how we start doing some foundational training aspects to prepare these dogs for their jobs down the line. Um, it goes anywhere from environmental aspects that we're doing to help the dogs be better prepared for their careers later on to motivational exercises, to cognition exercises, so stay tuned for the adventures of Chip and Rip on Ford K9 uh, on my social media at Ford or sorry at Cameron Ford K9. So if it's Instagram, it's just at Cameron Ford K9, and at Facebook at Ford K9 or at Cameron Ford K9. Uh, those will get you to Facebook and Instagram. Those are the main ones I do, and I do LinkedIn. So those that are on LinkedIn, just look me up, Cameron Ford. You'll find stuff there, but. Where I post most of my content, as most of you guys know, is Facebook and Instagram. Uh, there is YouTube, uh, and I'm increasing my YouTube presence and putting a lot of these videos over there. So uh, stay tuned for more videos. Uh, some updates on the webinar front. I will have webinars coming up here real soon uh, with uh, Bill Gaskins. That should be in a couple weeks. Uh, also with Don Blair, that was the other great episode that had a lot of feedback. So those are the first two that are coming up. There are some additional ones in the works and it'll also go to the Vimeo page on Ford K9 where all webinars are at. All the ones from the past are on there and you can join either the Ford K9 channel where you can pay just 25 bucks a month and watch each month all the webinars that are on that channel, which is usually two to three webinars, uh, in there. Or just go to the main channel page where all webinars are at, and you can get each webinar for $15. So uh, I think that pretty much covers all the updates for right now. So sit back, enjoy this next episode, and it's a fun one, especially for those of us. We've had this conversation before on here where we talk about the value of and the importance of raising dogs here in the United States to do the various types of work that we need them to do. And I have been doing cognitive testing, as I talked about, and doing those seminars, like I mentioned. 
And one of the main things that we knew that we wanted to find out was how far back in age can we go into puppyhood that tells us or gives us an idea of how predictable this is for uh, what this dog will turn out to be later on. So we get to see uh, through the research that my guest got to do, and we talk about that and the predictability of what they have seen in regards to the puppies over the past couple of years that they have been doing the research on. So hope you guys enjoy. As usual, any questions, comments, concerns, send your emails to Cameron at FordK9.com. Please like, subscribe, and rate our show. If you really like the show, give us that five-star rating so we can go up there uh, and our value in the basically podcast uh, platforms that are out there that rate us. So please give us those uh, great ratings so we can keep being popular and moving up the scale there. And I would be uh, amiss here if I don't thank the podcast sponsors. I really want to thank uh, Dr. Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury from Psy Canine for those awesome tads many of you guys know about. If you don't know what tads are, go check out psycanine.com, www.sciknumber9.com. Go check them out. Also, many of you guys have seen the scent wheels. Pat Nolan has created an amazing product for those that want to work on fundamentals or do research or do odor recognition testing. The scent wheels are amazing quality, stainless steel. He's got the portable one that folds up, super easy to take with you. He's got the bigger one. Go check out tacticaldirectionalk9.com or the easy version. Just go to my website, fordk9.com, go to the store there, and we also sell those for Pat as well as many other detection dog products from the glass jars to the tins, um, the shaker cans, and so forth. So go check it out. Uh, we also wanted to thank a few of the uh, organizations that are out there. You know, Canines United has been a really good one that's been out helping people um, with the, uh, uh, or, you know, providing dogs or training or equipment for programs. The uh, Georgia Police Canine Fund is another one. Go check out Spike's Canine Fund is another good one. Go check out those organizations, Warrior Dog. Um, these are all great organizations that that uh, help our canine community. So I want to give those guys all a good shout out here. And without any further ado and me running my mouth uh, with all this other stuff, enjoy this episode and look forward to your guys' feedback. Hello and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. This episode has been one I've been waiting to do for quite some time and many listeners have reached out to me, uh, especially with the seminars I've been doing on canine cognition and as the United States specifically has been really wanting to develop a puppy program for detection dogs. They know, or this the industry and people who listen to me know I do a lot of cognition stuff, but a number one question I get is puppies. What can we do with puppies? So today's episode is geared towards cognition, but specifically to puppies. So I would love to welcome my next guest 
Dr. Emily Bray. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> of course. Um, you know, obviously you and I have been friends for a while now and we got to meet at Duke when I was being quickly educated by you and Ben <laughs> and a few others that were there at the time. Um, but since then, or I would like to give our audience uh, a little bit of background about you and how you got to where you're at today and what you do. Sure. Uh, so first of all, I just want to say it has been so wonderful watching you be the liaison between the dog research world and the dog training world. And so I'm thrilled that I can be on your show today and, and happy to help with that goal, however I can. Uh, but so for my background, I was lucky enough to sort of stumble upon the Duke Canine Cognition Center as an undergrad. And I started volunteering in the lab. And after taking a class with Dr. Brian Hare, I signed up to do a senior thesis research project on impulse control in dogs. And so through that, I was able to work with Brian as well as his graduate student at the time, Dr. Evan McLean. And I just loved it so much. Um, so I ended up getting involved not only with the research in the pet dogs, but at the time they were just starting the research on working dogs as well. Um, so I was able to work with assistance dogs uh, through Canine Companions for Independence, as well as IED detection dogs at K2. Uh, and that was even cooler because it was cool to be able to start to see how our work could potentially help inform these real world scenarios. Um, so I graduated and I went to grad school at Penn where a lot of my research uh, focused on guide dogs at the CNI. And that's actually where I really became interested in this idea of collecting data on dogs over their lifetime and especially during early development. So instead of just working with them at one time point, what about, you know, as puppies or what about uh, watching them with their mothers. So I ended up studying a bunch of litters, looking at how their interaction with their mother over the first three weeks, um, as well as later performance on our cognitive and temperament tasks, predicted their eventual success as a guide dog. Uh, and then after I got my PhD, I signed on to do research through a joint position with Canine Companions and the University of Arizona. Uh, so I was excited to be able to join forces again with Evan, uh, who by that point had gone on to start his own lab, which is the Arizona Canine Cognition Center. And Evan and Brian had just gotten funding from the Office of Naval Research to do this longitudinal study on puppy cognition uh, into adulthood. And that is part of what I have been working on for the last three plus years. Um, and that's also how I met you, Cameron, <laughs> as, as you know. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and that was the the research that uh, was funded by ONR um, mm -hmm. was, like you said, how I got to meet you guys. And, you know, we had, of course, focused specifically on the working dog aspect. And for me, I was with the uh, um, Naval Special Warfare at the time. And we were looking at, uh, it was the first time for you guys where we incorporated dogs that also did uh, what we call patrol work or bite work in addition to detection dogs. And yeah. I think at that point, you guys had only focused on uh, everything had been when it came to military was detection dog only or the uh, explosive detection dog part the uh, that was being done under contract. Um, yes. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the single purpose dogs. So the so I'll go into a little bit of the research part of it. Tell us a little bit how you went from because you've done the testing on adult dogs and now you do puppies. So talk a little bit about the puppy aspect. Um, 
I'll kind of go against with it this way. Difference between puppy and also the adult, you know, what, uh, what are some things that are, you know, very distinctly different between doing the research you've done on adult dogs to what you do now on puppies? Yeah. So when we, um, so right, as you said, basically our research group have been conducting cognitive research in adult dogs for about 10 years. Um, and, and honestly, that's broadly true of dog research in general. It's, it's been very focused on adult cognition. Um, and so when we started to look at puppies, um, we wanted to do the same sorts of tasks, but we were also unsure what would be possible. Um, so we did a lot of what we call in research piloting, <laughs> um, which is basically we actually flew out to Canine Companions for a couple weeks um, before we started any of our official testing and, you know, took puppies from a range of ages from like eight to 11 weeks, I believe, um, and, and tried out these tasks on them to see what they were capable of. And I would say it, it was actually kind of surprising. We are able to do, uh, the same, definitely the same sorts of tasks that we do with the adults. Um, and actually almost identical ways. There's like a few modifications um, in terms of, for example, how we split up the testing. So our current battery of tasks, it's about 14 tasks, uh, we can do with an adult dog in a day. We do two sessions, we give them an hour break in the middle, uh, and you know, dogs can get through them in about an hour each. Uh, with the puppies, they can do those same amounts of tasks, but we do it over three days. Um, the sessions are much shorter. They get a lot more, you know, bathroom breaks and play breaks. Um, but by doing that, you'd be surprised at, at how much they can actually still get through, you know. Um, so that that was kind of a nice surprise. And also just in terms of um, so some of the tasks involve, you know, finding food under cups. And so with the adults, too, we have a warm up that we're not actually even measuring anything about their cognition. We're just basically showing them the rules of the game, right? Where it's like, you touch this cup, there's food under it because that's not something they normally do. And in fact, some dogs are maybe like actively discouraged <laughs> from doing mm -hmm. that, right? Like yeah. finding food on the floor, that sort of thing. Um, so we're basically just, you know, teaching them the rules of the game. And so again, with the adults, uh, we do that the first day. They're pretty, pretty darn good at it. And we can like move on to all of the tasks that build off of that. And so what we do with the puppies is we do that warm up on the first day. And then we do a bunch of other games that have nothing to do with that. Um, so like really simple, right? Like playing fetch with them um, to mm -hmm. see like their retrieval ability and having them step on and off of a step to see which paw preference they have, you know, are they right pawed or left pawed or, or neither. Um, and then on day two, we come back and we do the warm up again. Um, and then we move into, you know, our pointing tasks or our tasks that act or your memory tasks, um, where it involves touching the cups, but also is asking them, you know, to do something more cognitive. Um, and we found that again, spreading it out that way, they they do need that extra practice, but they can get there just like the adult dogs, which is exciting because it means we can then essentially play the same games with them. Um, just giving them a little bit more time to to get used to it. Sure. Now I'll, I'll bring it back to this. What is the importance of cognition and why do we even care about it? What value is it to the average dog person? You know, I come from, my joke is the knuckle dragging professional, 
law enforcement <laughs> police where we're like, we're just stupid dogs. We train them. They do whatever we want them to do. I don't give a care about intelligence and on and on and on. What is the importance of cognition and why should we uh, be aware of it and care about it in training? In addition to that, you know, I also have the flip side to that is opposite end of the knuckle dragger is the ones that have been around a long time in the research and academic side that go, oh, Cameron, these cognition <laughs> tests that you, this has been around since the seventies. You are telling nobody anything new. You just, <laughs> you're just recycling something from the past that we've all been very familiar with. In fact, really just reading your stuff is an utter waste of my time. Uh, you're again, they, you're just regurgitating stuff from what other people have done many, many, many years ago. So he, he kind of, Swinging that pendulum from the one side to the other, why should we, when it comes to dogs and those of us that, you know, this podcast is dedicated to detection dogs, what is the importance of cognition and what is the value we get out of it for what we do? Right. Well, so obviously I think that cognition is super important um, in terms of even with pet dogs, but especially, especially in working dogs. And I think that the more that we can understand, especially from the early days, right? Starting with puppies and then understanding what are they initially capable of? How does it change over time and into, you know, what they become as an adult um, can be really important in terms of making our training and, and eventual placement of working dogs as efficient as possible. Um, and also just, you know, from the dog's perspective, you know, if you understand how they think and their skill set, then you can adapt your training um, to to get the best results from that dog with the least effort possible and the most enjoyment, hopefully, you know, possible for Absol the dog. Absolutely. And that's you, you, you kind of hit on one thing I always say when I do these classes or I talk about it online or whatever is I'm not saying, you know, there's something extremely novel about this. I just say, you know, what I want to do is be efficient at what I do as a trainer or a handler. And right. I, these cognition tests help me understand that dog in front of me better than me kind of feeling around in the dark as I train and discovering as I'm training what the dog can do by doing the cognition test first it gives me kind of like that owner's manual to that dog's mind. And by mm -hmm. understanding, are they leaning towards a strong memory versus the, a stronger ability in inference uh, and problem solving by knowing which way that dog is kind of geared to allows me to be what you just said, efficient at my training time. And that was one of the byproducts of what we discovered when I was doing the research uh, at uh, at Naval Special Warfare with the dogs I got to do it with at that time. And one of the very unique things that came out of that that wasn't the goal of what we were studying, but we had a 30% reduction in training time because I wasn't kind of feeling around in the dark, learning that dog, and then figuring out over time what worked best and what didn't by doing those tests first. I ended up knowing, okay, I should probably change things faster on this dog because he's very memory oriented or the dog that had a stronger inference ability with that dog. What I did was had it, you know, try something new or I was able to 
create problem solving kind of things with its nose. So that way it was using mm-hmm. its nose first versus using its, you know, uh, visual memory aspects. So, mm-hmm. um, when you do these tests, what would you say, um, are some of the most telling tests that you do? And you can pick like, uh, one or two of the tests that you see when you do it with, uh, both adults or puppies, or if they're d- different then just do adults first, and then we'll go to puppies next. But what have you seen, uh, and, and describe that test as a good telling test? Sure. So, um, let's see, I guess I'll start with the adults. And honestly, for the puppy work that I'll, I'll be talking about today, we actually don't totally know, know yet what the most sure. predictive tasks are because it's still mid study. Uh, but I'm excited because basically in, by the end of April, we will have tested 415 puppies. Wow. <laughs> um, and now it's sort of a waiting game, right. To, for them to actually get outcomes. And obviously these are going to be, or maybe not obviously, because I haven't told you about the study, but the, these are canine companions uh, for independence, future hopeful assistance dog puppies. So their outcome is going to be specific to assistance dogs. Um, but that being said, we also have retested about half of them as adults. And I think that could be really interesting, no matter, you know, the occupation you're, you're eventually interested in, because what we can start to look at there is how puppy behavior is associated with later adult behavior. And probably, you know, which behaviors you're interested in, right? And, and there's also some literature on that as well. Um, in terms of a detection dog, right? Okay. But, yeah. Um, but so we so we can talk about that. But I know there's also been, um, you know, so some of the past work from our group that has looked at um, adult dogs uh, finds that things like uh, short-term memory and sensitivity to human gesture cues are important, um, and you know, might be linked to the eventual outcome, you know, if, if the dog is going to be successful as a detection dog or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, like I said, it's really great because we've been able to do these exact tests with hardly any modification in the puppies. Um, but again, we have not yet been following them long enough to, to link it uh, to exact outcomes. Um, but yeah, I'm happy I can describe some of the, some of the puppy tasks. Yeah, go ahead. Describe yeah, yeah, something that uh, these puppies go through that you're looking at, whether it be for uh, memory or inference. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, well, so we do a memory task that is very similar to the one that we do with the adult dogs. Um, and this is one that you're familiar with. So basically we have our overturned solo cups or, or buckets or what have you, you know, containers um, that we can bait with food one of them and the dog is unable to see which one oh sorry <laughs> they do see which one is baited duh that's mm-hmm. the memory component <laughs> <laughs> it's much but easier then, to do it when you're doing it and explaining it than trying to do it right? <laughs> over a over a microphone like, and a podcast yeah exactly so anyway they watch you hide it and um so what version do you do are there four hiding locations or we three? have the, I, the ones i do with the three so it's the uh three at 20 seconds three at 40 seconds and then again 20 seconds 40 seconds with distraction yes okay so with the puppies we have just the two hiding locations <laughs> um okay. so we've modified it a bit you know just because they're puppies and what we do is six trials each at 
five seconds, 10 seconds. And then if they are over uh, 50% correct, they go on to 15 seconds. And then again, if they're over 15% or 50% correct, they go on to 20 seconds. Um, and it's fun watching them do that one because some of them have really long memories and then others are, you know, don't, or they are just so um, raring to go yeah. during those 15 or 20 seconds. Um, but, and we actually don't even, so I know for the version you do, you hide the treat and then you have a big occluder that covers the cup so the yes. dog can't be looking. And we actually don't even use the occluder um, with ah, the puppies. Okay. So the we puppies just have the cups. So they just, so the puppy, basically you say, look, and the little puppy sees a treat and mm -hmm. you put the treat under cup left, cup right, whatever one that you the form says. And then mm -hmm. uh, the administrator who, put the food under the cup, steps back, however, you know, at two or three feet. And then you just wait the five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds accordingly. And mm -hmm. you, so you do five seconds. Is it five seconds, six times, 10 seconds, six times, mm -hmm. or is it three and three? Uh, six times. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so basically as you kind of go back and forth, you know, you do, let's say the, the very first one is under the right cup. You wait your five seconds, dogs release to go forward to make the choice. Uh, knocks over, sniffs the cup that has the uh, food in it. Correct option is picked. Um, and you do it six times to kind of see how accurate the dog is. And like you said, if they're right more than 50% of the time, they go from after doing five and 10 seconds, they can bump up to 15 seconds, correct? Yeah. Doing the same yeah. test. Okay. So yeah. So the, uh, you know, for the listeners, the adult version is it's three cups and same concept, whether it be a toy or a piece of food or whatever, we show the dog and then let the dog see us put it under the, either the left, right, or middle, you know, cup. And then mm -hmm. we put a divider, I call it divider or occluder. Basically it blocks the dog's view for 20 seconds in the first round. So you do three times 20 seconds and each time it's a different location. When the board is removed, the dog is allowed to go forward to make the choice based on, uh, you know, what's in front of them. So they, if they, most dogs, which is really just fun to watch when you do it is, um, let's say I'm putting it under the left cup. So the dog sees me put it under the left cup. I put the board out in front for 20 seconds. What I, what I like to use in one of my classes, I use a video that you probably saw it too from when I was with the uh, Navy SEAL dog program was a lot of the dogs, if they, they would in that time frame look down to the left, let's say that's where I put it. So even though that board's in the way, I would watch the dog's head every so often look to the left, like, okay, I'm going to go there as soon as I'm allowed to go. <laughs> And, you know, when you would see that, you knew those dogs were pretty solid with they're going to make a, a correct choice. Um, and what I've got to learn with that was, you know, the dogs with strong memory were also the ones that, you know, in our community would go, oh, that's a smart dog or that, you know, that dog's too almost too smart for us. It's just what a dog with good memory does is it's already trying to predict or figure out the game. And if you as a trainer are predictive uh, or you like to hide things in similar type setups or your odor setup is very similar. So for those of us that use boxes with a ball launcher in it or a box with a ball in it to make an association to odor, the dog works that memory very well versus actually problem solving it and knowing what they're looking for. So when you see a dog with a very strong memory, you kind of have to be better about your game as a trainer to change things up faster because you're 
going to fall into the trap that the dog's already ahead of you. So in the, in the, I always try to tell guys to, you know, people who go through school, you always want to be at least two steps ahead of the dog because the dog is usually within one step of you. And sometimes maybe a step ahead of you, if you're, if you're too predictive. <laughs> so, and, and with puppies, how have you seen it, or how predictive let's go with, I'll, I'll do broad strokes. So you've done these tests and, uh, um, you, you, just, you just grabbed a memory one right there. Um, and we'll, I'll circle back in a second here to an inference one. But uh, when you've done these tests and you see that a dog or a puppy is leans stronger on the memory side versus inference side, how predictive is that to when, this is a two-prong question, how predictive is that to when they become more adult, let's say eight months or so, um, do those trends stay the same? And the second part of the question is at that young age, if you see a dog who's just a strong in memory, can you build the inference and see an outcome change later on to a dog that then becomes stronger in inference? And is that directly related to things that we did? Or is that just, you know, is, is it still just luck? That's what happened. For the first part, um, we were able to look at what we would call right stability of traits. So if you test the one dog and then on this task and you test it again at an older age, and we actually tested them again around 18 months, just because that's when they enter training and canine companions program. So mm -hmm. that's when we had access to them. Um, basically, do we, do we see a correlation? Is there a one-to-one -one correlation? And so for memory, we actually did not see um, a correlation which was interesting. However, I will say the other thing that we looked at, um, and you don't actually even need a longitudinal design to do this. You could also just look cross-sectionally, right? Just at puppies versus adults. But we were able to look within the same dog. Just in general, everyone in the population gets better. <laughs> so oh, that's good okay. news. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and that was for most of the tasks, although not for our um, discrimination tasks. So we did a series of, we call them sensory discrimination. So visual, auditory, uh, and odor, which is probably of most interest to you and your listeners. Mm -hmm. um, and basically those, and they're pretty simple, right? So it's, it's more than like, it's not just like, can you see, smell here? Obviously they can do that, but can you use what you're seeing, smelling, and hearing to make correct choices? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so in the visual task, uh, literally you just have two plates. One is blank and another has five pieces of food on it. And, you know, do they go to the correct plate? And spoiler alert, they're really good at that one. Although yeah. <laughs> not all of them are perfect, which is honestly kind of surprising. <laughs> sure. So obvious. Um, then we have the auditory discrimination and you have two metal food bowls and you put your hand over both of them, but you only drop a treat in one. So like visually it looks the same, but the sound is only coming from where you physically drop the treat. Um, and so do the dogs go to the correct bowl? Um, and they're actually pretty terrible at that task. They are above chance as puppies, um, but, and they're barely better when they reach adulthood. So that's one where we like wow. don't really see big changes. Um, and again, going back quickly to the visual disc task, puppies are really good at it and they're just as good at it as adults. So it's sort of like they're already at, at, you know, able to, to do this task at adult levels when they're eight weeks old. 
Um, and then the final one is the odor discrimination task. And we have these, it's like a dog toy that has since gone out of business or, you know, is not available anymore, but they yeah. were called linkables. Okay. And so they're kind of this like L shaped con rubber container, almost like made out of Kong material. Okay. Um, and so basically what that means is we can put kibbles in one and then stuff kind of like cotton balls at the top and bottom. So they can't actually access it. And then and the other one, it's blank, but also has the cotton balls. And so we let them smell them and then pull them back. So there's, again, one on the left, one on the right. And we're just kneeling there holding them. Uh -huh. And then we give them 20 seconds and they can investigate however they want. And then we track both their first choice and their last choice. Um, and also, like, where they spend most of their time. Okay. Um, and so, again, we find that... Um, or no, this one, again, it doesn't improve with age. Like they do the same on this at eight weeks huh. as they do as an adult, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and in terms of like kind of like the the order, right? So like they're best at the visual disc, they're next best at the odor discrimination, mm -hmm. and then they're worst at the auditory discrimination. And that pattern holds as puppies and adults, which again is sort of interesting. interesting. Yeah. But then back to our original topic, for most of our other cognitive tasks, we see improvement with age, which you would generally expect, right? And we see the biggest improvement in things like impulse control. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and memory is another one where we, we see improvement. But we don't really see this evidence for longitudinal stability. In other words, how they're their memory as an eight week old puppy isn't really predictive of how their memory is going to be at 18 months. Good um, to know. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is interesting. Um, there are five, I think there were like five tasks where we did get significant longitudinal stability. Although with the caveat that all of that or none of them, you know, it's not like the correlation is like a hundred percent, you know, it's actually closer to something like 20 or 30%. Okay. Um, so I think what that speaks to is there for certain tasks, there's definitely clues, right, as to how that puppy will mature. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it's not the end all be all, which is uh, to getting to the second point of your question, yeah. um, which full disclosure, I don't know the answer, okay. right, of like, can it's a great question. Can we mold this? I think um, that's an open question. But the fact that especially for these tasks where there's not a lot of correlation that suggests to me that there's maybe room to, to, to work to improve that, or, or, you know, if that's something you want to improve. Um, but something that's something that we just haven't tested, you know, at this point, we're just sort of measuring things. And I think the next step would be, especially if we're like, Oh, we're really interested in this trait. The next, the kind of natural next question is like, okay, well, how can we can we intervene to foster that environmentally? Yeah. Um, and that's actually another part of our research that we started looking at with these traits um, is how heritable are they? Yeah. So how much of the variation that we are seeing is attributable to genetics versus environmental factors? And so really, either way, it's interesting because if you have a trait that is heritable, that's cool right because maybe yeah. we can try to breed for it especially yep. if, if we have a breeding program but if it's not highly heritable then we know okay this is a good one to target environmentally potentially mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um 
so either way it's interesting um but what was I gonna oh well I guess I, do you want to know the tasks that did have longitudinal stability absolutely please do tell <laughs> cool. I will tell. Uh, so the one, uh, so like I said, there's five of them. So one is uh, the odor discrimination task, actually. So that we found that the puppy performance was predictive of the adult performance or, or correlated to. Then there was the communicative marker task. So we haven't covered social cues yet, but um, basically I think kind of like the quintessential canine cognition task that maybe people have heard of is this idea of point following. So if you have two overturned cups and we hide food under one kind of unbeknownst to the dog and we get their attention and we say, look, and point to the correct cup, dogs, adult dogs are known uh, for being able to follow that point and, and use that information. And so People have looked at this a little bit in puppies, but we wanted to look at it with this big sample size that we have. Um, And it was exciting because we saw that even at eight weeks of age, and this is before they're even living one-on-one with their puppy raiser, like they're Mm -hmm. still living with their litter mates, they were able to follow our points significantly above chance, which is awesome. So in other words, if they were guessing, we'd expect them to get it right 50% of the time, but instead they're getting it right about 70% of the time. Yeah, which is important because those of us in that do detection, and this is going to be a, uh, this is one of the main points I discuss a lot is mm-hmm. a dog whose natural propensity is to look to me for information. Because as as Brian Hare points out, there you know, and I use that statement in my lecture all the time is there is no other animal on the planet that has the ability to understand gesture communication and human intention better than a dog. So Mm -hmm. if you're any type of detection dog handler and you go into something with a bias or belief that there's something there or in this area or at this spot, the dogs, especially the ones that have that higher ability to really read you, will use that to either solve the problem or just the attempt to gain the reinforcer. And you know, I want the dog, uh, when I do my tests, I really like the dogs that even when they know the right answer, they don't follow what I point to. They go, well, nope, the right answer is over here. And I use that just simply Mm -hmm. as an informational thing. Okay, good. This dog, despite me pointing to this thing over here that has nothing in it, they know what they want. So over here, they'll go to what they want. Um, because later on, either when there is no, you know, let's say we're, we're evolved now, we're into the actual dog's working odor. There is no odor there and I'm doing all the things going, come on, why aren't you telling me it's there? I know it has to be here because this is what I was told or this is what my belief is or what have you. I want the dog mm-hmm. to be like, you're full of it. I, I got nothing for you. Um, versus the one who the ones who are more apt to just naturally follow uh, what we do. And then they'll be like, you know, typically what I see is dogs that are more on the side of pleasing us or this is part that comes from the sporting dog community uh individuals who have done a lot of communicative type sports where the like agility or other aspects where they have to follow the handler's uh information or body positions or points and then now they're doing detection and all those things are now gone they there is no human communicate or the human is the least best part of the communication cycle in that environment that the dog who's heavily again on the side of gesture communications to problem solve struggle or 
there's a level of reliability issues that I look at professionally for a dog that leans a lot on figuring things out from us, which is the complete diametric opposite for those in that uh, canine campaigns for independence. They want the dogs that (laughs) are heavily into, uh, which was so cool when at the end of the day, when we did the research, despite me looking at things from the opposite spectrum and them at that end, uh, a lot of the results of what we saw percentage wise and what we needed and what they needed was about the same by using those tests, you know, they were looking for mm-hmm. the dogs that did these things. I was looking for the dogs that didn't do those things. And we right. had very similar <laughs> results as far as success rates when we followed those tests. Um, you know, kind of bringing that around, like you said, it's it's really cool and, and surprising in some cases to see that uh, not much changes from that puppy to adult. Um, the, you know, that that let's call it independence factor those dogs that are independent and don't really want to overly use us to solve the problem. They use their other senses to do it. Um, mm-hmm. Maintain that, uh, which I think is right. very, very well, helpful for those that are doing breeding or, or raising dogs to become, let's say in my world, the detection dog side of things. And what you're going to say? Yeah, definitely. Well, so, cause right. So there's back to the longitudinal stability, the pointing was like, not quite significant, but using a marker cue was, which is another one mm-hmm. of our social tasks where you show them a marker that has no value, except that you're showing it to them. So you're kind yep. of imbuing it with this social significance and then you place it next to the correct cup. And so their ability to follow that is stable over time yeah. as well as, and, th- and this gets at um, what you were talking about. So, so those are the social cue tasks, but then I know you've, I think you've even talked about this task on the podcast before, but there's the unsolvable task, yes. right? Where you hide food in a box. And again, this is a great example of that sort of service dog detection dog dichotomy where like this task is useful for either profession, but like you're looking at opposite things, uh-huh. right? So for a service dog, it's like, okay, are they looking to the human for help? Whereas maybe for a detection dog, it's, are they independently trying to solve it? Yep. And what we found is that in the unsolvable task, the average time manipulating the box, right? So, mm-hmm. so they're independently trying to solve it. That is stable over time. Uh, which is which really again, good. It's good news. Yeah. <laughs> because, it, and for the listeners, basically what it is, is you have like a clear container and you put the toy or food in this clear container, then it has like a lockable lid um, and you time over a period of one minute, how long the dog, you know, for me, I have the students time how long the dog is interacting with that box. How long are they trying to get that item out? Uh, I know on your guys' side of it, you guys time how long the dog looks to the handler or the person in the room for help. And you monitor Mm -hmm. that. Um, So, and again, just like you said, even on the side of the canine, canine companions for independence, where the dog is looking for the human for help, dogs that score. And I, for me, dogs that are in that, let's say 47 seconds or above interacting with that item for a minute are dogs I like a lot or or do well in detection. And I would assume dogs that are looking to the human for 45 seconds or more are dogs that do well or predictive to do well in the assistance category. Would that be? Yes, that is, that's true. That is, um, I think Evan and Brian found that and that is, um, published. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I, and I definitely. didn't read that one. And that's just my experience of what I've seen by me doing the tests over and over again with dogs. And the funny part is even before I was exposed to this, you know, many in the detection dog world will tell you or in the law enforcement world or military world, 
they had versions of this test that they did because I did it too, which was we may take mm-hmm. a ball or an item and put it under a milk crate or put it behind a chain link fence or do these things where they can't get to it, but mm-hmm. we're not going to help them. How persistent are they at trying to get at it? And depending on the type of dogs there are that, you know, you have, let's just say your Malinois that would try to chew through the chain link fence to get to it or break the plastic bucket to get into or the, the milk crate uh, to, let's say, the the Labrador or the pointer that will just stand there and look at it for a solid minute, you know, waiting for you to do something with it. The answer was basically the same. They were very persistent at going after that high value item uh, versus the dogs that would look to you. In addition to that, you know, one of the modifications I made by learning from somebody else was while that, let's say, object is behind, I'm going to use the chain link fence thing. While the object Mm -hmm. was behind the chain link fence, the person, so me as the handler or the person that brought the dog there and did this test, we would start backing away and we would want to see how far we could go away from the dog and the item before they would either come to us or just stay there. And was it 10 feet? Was it 20 feet? What could I, could I basically go away, drink coffee, come back and that dog would still be there, you know? And, and, you know, it's funny because as, as we've learned, or I know I have learned, um, some of the dogs though, that are so persistent also lack mental flexibility. And have you seen that in puppies where a dog that is, because the tough part is, it looks really good. A dog that is super persistent is has a lot of good desirable aspects to it. But when you train and the dog believes the answer is this because this is what had previously got reinforcement, it, they do not know or they struggle to try something different versus they just keep doing the same thing. And of course, I, my joke is, what's the definition of insanity? So those dogs <laughs> that have that really high persistence level also border on that line of insanity because they won't try something different. They will keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping that the reinforcer will happen that way versus the dogs that will try once or twice and go, you know what? That's not working. Let's try something different. I really desire those, those dogs or those puppies that will, even though they've, you know, played this game three or four times this way, I change one condition. I want to see how fast they can make a change and, and try something different versus just staying highly persistent. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, 
your, your hides were at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordCanine.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at tacticaldirectionalcanine.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com. Or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store and look at any of the variety of detection related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, fordk9.com. 
So you are perfectly describing. Um, we have a task called the cylinder task, which I don't, I don't know if you ever did the cylinder no, task or not. Uh, this is, are you so familiar this is new with to it? me. So you describing it would be the first time I've ever heard of it or seen oh, it. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. I love the cylinder task. This is actually, um, I used it in my, my senior thesis. Um, and it, the, the premise of it is to look at impulse control, okay. right? So you, the idea is that you have picture, um, like a, a two liter Coke bottle and you cut the top and bottom off. So it's a cylinder with okay. open ends. Um, and so the idea is that in the beginning, you, you know, put black duct tape over it. So it's opaque. They can't see what's inside and you hide a treat and the dog learns, okay, if I go to either side, I can get the treat. Great. So you do these warm up trials until you're showing that they know the answer, right? They just go around and get the treat simple. Um, and then you do the test trials, which is you give them the exact same problem, that same, you know, two liter Coke bottle, but now instead of being opaque, it's transparent okay so the same problem but now they can see the reward yep. so it's this temptation right yeah and so on the impulse control side our our question is you know we we have them do eight trials ten trials what have you how many times are they able to kind of cleanly go around and get the treat which they had no problem doing you know when they couldn't see the treat um or are they kind of ramming into the front, getting excited, pawing at it, and like, you know, all their problem solving goes out the window. Sure. Um, so that's an interesting task in and of itself. And then what we did, um, starting with this puppy battery that I love, and I think it really gets at, we would call it reversal learning, but I think it's exactly what you were just describing, where it's like, you basically the idea is that they've now solved this problem, and we let them get the treat whether or not they hit the front or not. Mm -hmm. So they normally have a preferred side, right? So they'll go always to the left or always to the right and get that treat. And now they'll have done it, you know, eight times. And now we put another kind of plastic barrier on their favorite side. And so not only do they have to, you know, resist the temptation of running into the front, but now when they go to the side, they normally go to it's locked. So can they go around to the other side? <laughs> Um, and how, and let me ask is how long is the two? Because so can they still, can they obtain it from either side or are you just looking at their attempt to obtain it? Cause let's just say it was, uh, and I don't know the diameter of the tube, but like it's you said, it, short. Okay. So only <laughs> so what, they could get four, it from either side. Okay. So and like honestly, four or five if I could redo the task, I think what I would do would be only ever have one side open and then on the reversal, just flip it around. Yep. So then that way. Like I said, most dogs have a preferred side, but I feel like sometimes, you know, a dog will go to the left, the right, the left, the right. And then when you block one side, it seems like it's not as hard for them because they've been choosing from either side, you know? Yeah. Um, but for the most part, they they have a strong preference and go to the same side. Um, and then we switch it up on them. And it's really interesting to look at. Um, so, so like a lot of times, actually, in the adult dogs, we get this sort of like unsolvable task effect where once it's blocked and this again these are mainly you know future assistance dogs so it's blocked and then they kind of hit it and then they sit back and look at us and they're like, sure uh how do um, i solve this now because you took away my yeah. means to do it yeah yeah whereas i think the puppies actually are maybe even a little bit more or less phased by it where they'll you know still kind of go to their preferred side but then more quickly keep investigating and, and find that correct side and it's really cool to see sometimes there's like these light bulb moments where, cause often even if they make it to the, um, 
you know, the, the correct side, not like the side that's now open, they still sort of walk around. So that it's like this long path that they didn't need to take. Right. Sure. And yeah. so sometimes they have this light bulb moment where they're like, Oh, and then they just take the direct shortest path. And it's really cool to see that. Um, so those are all things that we've been tracking. And I, I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, how that maps. Like I said, this is a new part to that. We've been doing the cylinder task for a while, but adding this sort of detour reversal learning component is new. Um, so well, that, it'll and be I interesting. Think, yeah. Well, what, what is super cool would be, it's also what I would call, and I, this isn't, a, this is just me making something up, dimensional learning <laughs> where they're realizing there's different dimensions or a way or to something mm. because I mm-hmm. see it. Yeah. I see it often in detection dogs in the sense of we teach things very linear, you know, they get used to going mm-hmm. down, let's say a wall or a lineup or, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you go to a room and you have furniture items that have depth and height and they struggle because obviously we've done lots and lots of reps where it was a linear fashion and they don't understand, at least at first, they eventually get it, you know. But again, if I could have a, a testing measurement, something like these kind of tests where they have to go deep into something or around or up to something to figure it out, that would be, mm-hmm. I think, helpful uh, as a mm-hmm. training aspect. If I could see that early on or I see that's a natural tendency for the dog, I know my life uh, in training is going to be a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if I don't, <laughs> I need to create it in training so they can be successful earlier on versus waiting um, you know, because I'm following a system of training that says we do A, B, C, D, and then I go into rooms and things like that. So if I knew this right. dog was very linear or wasn't really great at problem solving height or depth kind of concepts, I could help that early, you know, in these tests or these kind of games. Uh, develop that. And then when I'm doing detection, it will happen more naturally, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the beauty of of this task and really what we try kind of aim for with all of these tasks uh, is the spontaneous ability of the dog to participate, right? So like a lot of times in like more traditional reversal learning tasks, it's like, you know, you're in front of a touch screen and you have to learn like this shape versus that shape. And mm-hmm. like, you know, it takes hundreds of trials. And uh, whereas this is like we're capitalizing on a behavior that the dogs are doing naturally, right? Like they're finding food um, and they have to take a pathway and now it's blocked. What do you do? And like, honestly, that also seems like with what you're describing and their training, sort of like a similar type of problem more so than like. Right. Like well, yeah, and and we created it. And- <laughs> well, we created it ourselves because of our setups. You know, like I said, in in the detection world, whether it be a row of boxes against a wall or uh, the wall itself with these various portholes, or for me, whether it be um, I, I have basically like these scent cans or these the basically they they hold the odor in it. They're shaker cans that you can get from like restaurant style stuff. And, uh, but it holds the odor in it and you can put, it's an, in a lineup. Now what, what's super interesting is, um, those that now start using the wheel, like I used it and I, and I, I learned it from seeing medical research and then Pat Nolan, uh, did really good at, uh, finding a good manufacturer and, and producing it for us in detection dog world, uh, more readily available. The wheel, the very first time dogs go to the wheel, um, 
they don't know what to do. They don't understand that they can go around it. Some want to cut through it. You know, they are on one side of it and they want to run to the other side. They don't know how to go around. So that's, it's a fun one to see them figure it out. But the funny part is within, I usually say it's about three times of exposure to it. They understand, Oh, just go around the wheel and they get it. Um, what is what an attribute that we added to the wheel was the ability to lengthen the arms. So we could set it up where there's every other arm is out X amount of inches from the other arm. So you then you have like that uh, in and out effect and they learn how to, you know, navigate depth that way um, in that kind of context. So it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a tool that's helpful. Um, there's the, in those kind of settings, the odor is very concentrated and in that one can versus later on when you put something behind a furniture item, or it, let's say let's say it's a desk and you put the odor at the back of the desk near the wall, but of course the desk protrudes out two and a half, three feet from the wall. The dogs going around the space, they will actually go across the surface of the desk versus going deep to the wall to the corner to figure it out. And depending, of course, how the odor movement is within that space really dictates how successful that can be. So there's... Uh, again, you know, and I joke around with students, you know, dogs that I call odor savvy, they've done it a while, are very good at it. They figure it out and, you know, okay, there's a little bit of odor. Hey, let me go back to the backside of it. Oh, yep, there it is. The dogs that are learning catch odor, shoot past, and they will search everything but the area where it's coming out probably the best. And you you you, you want to jump in. You want to help the dog out. Uh, in many cases, the value is to not do that and allow the dog to learn and self-discover versus stepping in. But boy, is it hard not to want to just go, come here, check right here, and you'll solve the problem. But I try to let everybody know is in most cases, you stepping in creates that dog, like we talked about already, who's has a tendency to use us for information just gets what they want, which only further reinforces the fact that they you can use us to solve their problems. So uh, the importance there is to to allow the dog to figure it out. But what I like about what we're discussing here is the ability to kind of create games, especially with young dogs, to teach these different concepts, to teach, though, I can see it, but how do I get to it? You know, versus just I'm going to keep mm-hmm. banging my face into the front of this thing because I can see it versus <laughs> going around the edge and just reaching into my paw or my face to grab it out. So, yeah, th- those are fun little tasks. Um, you know, I would love. Yeah. To- and it'd be Go interesting because, like, again, we've never really used them or, like, you know, in a research setting where we give them to them repeatedly over development and then look for improvement. But what we can say is if you give this task to a puppy and then you give it again to them as an adult there there's like a correspondence in the behavior so i guess that's also helpful even at the stage of like when you're trying to like select a puppy for yeah. example um but i think that's really cool and should be explored further this idea of trying to build that skill and and what's the best way to do that yeah or or like you said build the skill as part of it and then the ones that are natural to it because a lot of the listeners uh, that'll be listening to this podcast, or I think that will get the most out of this podcast are going to be, um, the ones who are looking to help the industry here in the United States with a sound breeding program. And what are some things that they can do with these young dogs, 
Uh, and this is only one component of it, of course, but what can they do or what can they look at that tells them this is a good candidate? This is one we should invest more time into because at the end of the day, we all know time is our only commodity. And, we, you know, by we don't want to put too much time into something um, that doesn't really have reward in it. So we want to be efficient, like we said, you know, early on, um, what are things that we can do that identify? And then, because within the, the raising of the dogs, and this is something you might be able to speak about here as I finish this statement is the, the hard, you know, we have the breeding aspect. We go, okay, good. We got two good genetic, you know, specimens here. We bred them. Here's our litter. Okay. Boom. We've done some testing. These are really nice candidates. We so far, Here's where the rubber meets the road and the number one struggle is that raising aspect, taking it from that eight to 10 weeks to that, say that six to eight months old and not breaking that fine piece of China of a dog that we have. <laughs> and it, so w- what has been successful, and I know yours is specific towards the CCI aspect, but what are successful aspects to that uh, rearing and raising of the dogs so that way we don't lose out on that you know, <laughs> potential candidate? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the million dollar question. <laughs> See, Unfortunately, well, so like a lot of our research, um, we, the only research that we've been able to do with that is with, so um, Canine Companions has a, puppy raising system, as does the CNI, a lot, a lot of assistance dog organizations do. So, right, they kind of breed their dogs in their breeding program. They get the puppies and then around, you know, eight, nine weeks, they go out to families that raise them uh, and volunteer and raise them. Um, and so we don't really have contact with them then. I I think actually Brian is is starting a study where he's beginning to look at least at the beginning stages of that, right? Like, so when they're five, six months old, or also, you know, the, the Auburn program has looked at that time frame. but for us, we don't get to physically interact with the dogs. We do get, um, we have the puppy raisers fill out questionnaire measures that are just like, you know, self-report on the sea bark. Are you familiar with the sea bark? I know I've heard it, but for every, in my purposes and everybody else, go ahead and explain it. Yeah. So the sea bark is the Canine Behavioral Research Questionnaire out of uh, the University of Pennsylvania um, and was developed as 101 questions that just ask about the dog's behavior. So everything from, um, you know, sort of miscellaneous items like does the dog chase its tail or, or how much does the dog snap at flies like that, you know, sure. or eat poop, like yeah, all of that. Yeah. And then kind of like the bigger topics of like, dog aggression, uh, stranger aggression, fearfulness, you know, all of that sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, it focuses a lot on like problem behaviors, I would say. Um, and so a lot of these assistance dog organizations, the puppy raisers fill out these surveys when the dogs are six and 12 months. Um, and then we can actually look at that data. And again, these are just self-report measures um, by the puppy raisers, but we can see like, okay, can we use these scores and then predict who's, how well can we predict who's going to be a successful assistance dog or a successful guide dog? Um, And it turns out you can predict pretty well the, the 
the ones that are definitely not going to make it right. So like <laughs> the dogs that we predict that are going to fail, like, you know, the bottom 10%, we are right that they yeah. are not going to make it in the program 90% of the time. Yep. <laughs> um, but obviously it gets harder uh, on the other end. And and then there's a ton of dogs in the middle. Yep. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, honestly, our research has really been, I mean, Honestly, for the most part, it's been in the adult dogs, but obviously the earlier you can start to look at these dogs, like you said, in terms of making the process more efficient and so that you're not wasting yeah, <laughs> precious or, or just time over, and resources. Yeah, investing in re- or putting resources in ones that we just know are better being maybe a pet or better at exactly. yeah. um, maybe PTSD <laughs> companionship kind of dogs. I mean, the way I look at it and, and what happens in this industry is if the dog isn't going to be a bomb dog, or I'm just picking on this part of it, if the dog isn't going to be a bomb dog, well, then I've wasted my time or money. And then that one dog that makes it, I want $25,000 for it because my time was worth all of that. And, you know, we have to look at it, um, much differently. You know, these Mm -hmm. dogs, you know, many of us that have been doing a long time can tell you looking at some dogs and go, okay, that dog is going to be better at this type of detection versus this dog is going to be better at this type of detection. So it's not a waste, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, uh, you, if you're going yeah. to be a person who raises dogs or breeds and raises dogs to get into a detection type market, you have to understand that don't paint yourself into the corner of, oh, I must only produce bomb dogs because that's what the U.S. needs the most of. No, you have to mm-hmm. look at it as I want to produce detection dogs. And mm-hmm. there is a vast market for detection dogs. And the detection mm-hmm. dog market itself is growing Quite a bit. There's a lot more now, at least here in the States, that we are applying to use detection dogs. And I say the States because Europe has already been doing a lot of the things that we are now starting to do, like more of the wildlife mm-hmm. conservation aspects or the uh, bio detection slash, and I don't know the exact term, but basically like things for in- invasive species and in, in, uh, various types of environments using dogs to detect whatever that invasive species is. Um, including mm-hmm. medical detection. I think that is growing even more with dogs, especially after COVID now and, and the work of uh, Dr. Cindy Otto and, and some of the other ones in different mm-hmm. universities looking at, you know, though there's, you know, and the sad part is you get the pendulum on this as well. You get the really good um, research and effort done on medical detection dogs uh, and then there's going to be the civilian component that comes in and goes cash cow. Okay. Let's start putting dogs out. We'll call them COVID detection dogs. <laughs> and without really any standards that currently exist, what can you do? You know, they're going to, they're going to be able to do that until, uh, a standard comes up and then they get tested against the standard. And then the ones that do do things the right way pass, no problem. And the ones that were more or less out for money, you get caught for doing that. So, and that, you know, isn't necessarily relative to that kind of world, but, um, we, we have to, as we develop dogs, uh, for our detection needs, we need dogs that, um, you know, can fit, you know, in one litter, there could be, let's just say we had six puppies. There might be, uh, three, maybe four that will be in some form of professional detection. And then the other, you know, two to three 
you know, you may have that we're, we're perfect for like a companion CCI slash maybe even those that just do need that emotional support, like the, for those with PTSD and things like that. So there's still uh, avenues and venues for those types of dogs. You can't just go, oh, it doesn't work. And, and, and I use the model of the hunting dog community. You know, this is something that's been in the United States for a long time. And those individuals that have been doing or having dogs for any number of different hunting purposes, let's say like uh, the the gun dogs, and I say gun dogs for the duck world, where they, they you know, the dog has to retrieve the duck that's been shot and bring it back to the, to the handler, or the dogs at uh, the pointers who work the fields and then indicate, allowing the hunter to know, okay, there's birds up ahead. The, the hunting dog community has done a really good job of knowing what they're looking for, what they're raising. And I'll say, yes, I totally agree. They're using a lot of what the mother nature breeding aspect has done for them. You know, there's, but there's a ton that look for environmental aspects. You know, obviously, uh, the surety during gunfire, um, the sociability between the dogs themselves, um, the, you know, how they, how basically how some are efficient in how they're hunting. Um, but I think one thing that's kind of amazing, we're kind of, I'm kind of sidetracking it here is that the ability of using dogs to teach each other. And I, I don't know, mm, know mm-hmm. how much you guys have looked into this too, but how the mimicking behavior of the dogs following another dog, either another dog of their same age or the, obviously the parent dog, um, to learn things. Have you guys looked mm-hmm. into that and, and how is mimicking behavior, uh, useful in, in the training? Yeah, we have not, I know there's been some cool studies where they have looked at that. And I think a sort of recent example that I've heard that I think is interesting is, you know, how there's a lot of groups now doing these, um, MRI scans on dogs, yes, right? The yes. awake MRI scans. And I feel like I can't remember which group it is. Maybe I, I'm not even going to say because I don't know. But, I, I do know um, Auburn has done it. I and I, they've done it with the relation of you know bringing odor to the dog while it's under MRI and looking yes. at the brain reactivity to guys obviously yes. known unknown odors. Yes, right. So there's really cool research, but in the just the training of getting the dog comfortable yeah. with yep. the MRI, I've heard of them having sort of like a demonstrator dog, um, which I think both in terms of, you know, showing them what to do, but maybe even more so just like, look at how calm, like the emotional state of the dog to kind of show the dog that's learning, like there's nothing to be afraid of, like they're fine, you're fine, everyone's fine, you know? Um, So that's interesting too. Um, But yeah, we have not done anything with that, but there was another paper a while back and I feel like it was, with detection dogs and that they kept the puppies with the mom yeah, while she it was, was a being guy trained out of Australia, if I remember correctly. Okay. And mm-hmm. you know, again, and I'm, I'm only quoting what I remember reading. Um, mm-hmm. but yes, the mom was a drug trained dog. And as mm-hmm. the puppies aged, he would do training and, the, and those puppies would be there and watch what mom would do. And, mm-hmm. uh, basically broad strokes again i'm sure there'll be uh, a listener that will probably email us or send us the actual uh, study from it but um in, in a nutshell there was transferability of watching mom doing mm-hmm. the work 
offering those behaviors, them basically copying the same thing, um, and being somewhat being a, there's a level of success to it. And I, I don't know what that mm-hmm. is or what the percentage was, mm-hmm. but it was doable because, and again, if you look at the hunting dog world, or we even look at, um, those that do, uh, patrol work where we're doing bite and aggression type work, we use other dogs to feed off that. So in the, let's say, uh, sport community where there's bite work involved or bite work training involved, they'll put young dogs out watching these other dogs get engagement from the decoy, the guy who's taking the dog or taking the bites from the dogs. And I know in Holland, uh, one of the main things they do is while these young dogs are watching these older dogs train, the dogs that put forth the best effort or most desired behaviors get interaction with that decoy. And that kind of fosters, you know, either other dogs to realize, oh, this is what works, but also, of course, reinforces that puppy's behavior of doing whatever it was it was doing. And I, and I've, of course, wanted to do this more myself because back on the detection side of things, obviously the hunting world, it is a form of detection. The, 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 let's say the lead dog, the dog that is doing really well at locating whatever the game is that they're hunting for. Um, the other dogs learn from following that dog. Um, so how could we take lessons learned from that and apply it to detection, uh, apply it to learning in general? You know, um, you know, I could take a dog, you know, I would love to take a couple puppies and have them basically off the side, watch a couple dogs go into a room, search the room, uh, find something get in the behavior offered, whatever that is, uh, and then gain reinforcement and interaction with their handler and then let a puppy loose that's been watching it and see what they do, you know, or a young dog and see what they do, see much mimicking happens, uh, in that, in that context. And, uh, again, it's just, it's super interesting because, you know, again, it's efficiency we know it works in certain contexts like hunting and things like that. Can we, can we learn from this, apply the cog- the lessons that we've learned in cognition and apply it in something like this in detection that has very similar traits to the natural traits of hunting and, and searching and apply it and, and see what we get with young dogs. Because, you know, and I, I've told some people, you know, what I recommend with young dogs is lots of searching games. Just have fun creating searching games. You know, have them, in a sense, work for their food as a puppy. And I, what I mean by that is just, their meal, they have to go find it. And in doing those in various contexts, and that that was one of the ways I looked at building the ability and height and depth and things like that for a puppy, learning how to problem solve it to get their food um, is something that that would transfer later on when I change a now you're not looking for food, but you're looking for this. Um, you know, and they'll have the, the, the ones that want to argue, oh, you're making food the most, well, food's, food's already the most valuable. I'm just using a context of the young dog. And then later I'm going to take that context and build off of that and use it for my, my odor work. Um, and a lot of my friends will do toys and whether it be food or toy, I'm just talking, when I use food, I'm thinking of it as a much younger aspect where, where the toy value is, you know, not quite there, but natural ability to hunt for food is already there. Um, so as, as something like that, that helps take a skill and we build from it. Yeah. And this is also, this isn't exactly the same thing, but it's reminding me a little bit of one of our other findings when we were looking at the longitudinal stability. So I, what we have to talk about up until this point is this sort of, you know, one-to-one correlation where like, if they're good at odor discrimination task as a puppy, they're good at odor discrimination task as an adult. But we 
looked at it another way where we basically said, um, is there kind of a more general puppy cognitive profile that is going to predict any one of these given adult behaviors when they grow up? Um, and you can do that, you know, you use these linear models and you basically um, say like, okay, are there multiple tasks that, or, or aspects that go together or just, you know, one task that seemingly doesn't have to do with another task, but will predict it later. Um, and when we look at it that way, we find like, so for example, when we play fetch with the puppies and we give them scores on how, how into retrieval they are, um, we don't see any correlation between puppy and adult retrieval scores. Um, but if we look at um, the puppy retrieval scores, they are associated with problem-solving performance as an adult on one of our problem-solving games. And so basically the most playful and engaged puppies in this fetch task grow up to be like the fastest and most successful problem solvers, which is sort of interesting. And again, this is just like an association we found, like we didn't then try to like, you know, foster playfulness in the puppies, but it it just kind of reminded me of what you were suggesting where you're like making it a game, getting them engaged, and then that translates into more of the behavior that you want as an adult, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, you, you're bringing up something I wanted to talk about, which was impulse control and how mm. we, I, I guess what I want to ask you is describe some things that you guys do to look at and or build impulse control that we could apply to uh, a detection dog who has to have that impulse control when they find the target stimulus, the odor. Mm -hmm. um, because the number one thing I see, and, it, and it's a direct <laughs> result of our own creation, is dogs that <laughs> lack that impulse control because they'll hold it for, let's say, three to five seconds if we're lucky, but then they're going to do something. They're either going to nudge it, uh, mm -hmm. they're going to look at the handler, they're going to, they, they change versus just steady holding that behavior. And what I find completely funny is, when we use a computer, so when I say use computer, uh, Nathan Hall and I know Pat Nolan have done things where they have like an infrared uh, beam across the, let's say, the port or the location where the odor's at. And that mm -hmm. beam, when it's broken, uh, I guess it randomizes how long it will until it beeps to give the dog the signal they can get the reward. That device mm -hmm. works way better than any human rewarding because the dogs just will hold and hold and hold until they hear the beep. <laughs> and though those of us that use a audible marker system, whether it be a word or a clicker or whatever, from what my experience is, we still hold nothing to what a computer could do when it did randomized, you know, audible signal based on X amount <laughs> of seconds with a dog doing it by itself at a, you know, you know, cutting the laser beam across, you know, whatever the port was that had the odor in it. So the dog goes along, searches, sticks his nose in the port, holds, and will hold it until that beep happens. And if, because huh. the computer did it versus the human did it, the dogs worked better uh, under that condition versus hmm. us marking or verbally, you know, giving the signal. Um, so what are some things, you know, and that was just to, for listeners to kind of go, wow, that's, that's, you know, surprising. Not, I know not so much surprising to you to think that a computer could do better than us when it comes to <laughs> delivery reward. But anyway, what mm -hmm. are some good impulse control, uh, games or things that are very helpful for dogs to learn? Yeah, well, so again, the cylinder task that I talked about earlier is one way that we measure impulse control. And again, a lot of 
what I do in my research, <laughs> which is maybe not helpful in this to this question, but sure. you know, I measure it and then I don't then necessarily follow up on <laughs> how to train for it or um I think the way that I think about the research, and again, mainly it's also a function of like when we have access to the dog. So it's like we have access at one time point when they're young and then again when they're older. So what we can do with that and what we've been trying to tease apart, right, is okay, so how does, you know, with no intervention, how does the cognition change or not? Um, is it heritable? How much is it, you know, genetics versus environment? And then is it predictive? And then once we have those pieces, then I'm going to say, okay, people that know how to train dogs, <laughs> this is where you come in, <laughs> Yeah, you know? Um, but, it, but I think it is an important piece to even know um, those kind of baseline facts about, about these behaviors. Um, so like I said, the, the cylinder task is a, one that we think is measuring impulse control. Um, and then we, didn't do this one with the puppies, but this is one uh, that we used to do, uh, and it's kind of funny. So it, I think of it as almost like a human version of the cylinder task. So it's, and again, this is not as high tech as the like lasers and computers. So mm -hmm. <laughs> bear yeah. with me. But essentially, we would have um, this barrier that was like essentially like a shower curtain, <laughs> right? Okay. That was clear that like I, as the experimenter, would stand behind. Um, and initially we were doing this task as sort of a, a detour task where one arm, so think of the shower curtain as sort of like a V around me and one okay. arm was longer and okay. like the dog, again, it's like the cylinder task, the dog has to kind of make a detour and get to me. Um, and so we were initially interested in like, could they, would they choose to go the shorter route, you know, kind of like their spatial awareness, that yep. sort of thing. Um, but then we quickly became interested in the impulse control aspect. Um, so this task is also, again, I wish we had, you know, slides, I could show you some pictures, but sure. basically this was back from the days when we were testing both the canine companions dogs and the K2 dogs. And when we would test the K2 dogs, you know, we have our Kong and our, our reward for them. And I'm, you know, behind the, the barrier calling them. And um, I literally had to start wearing a helmet because some of them <laughs> would just kind of launch and at the and I think Brian and Evan were like we can't have you know you injured so yeah. you need to wear this helmet and then so I show up at Canine Companions and I have my helmet and everyone's like what are you doing because you know meanwhile the Canine <laughs> Companion dogs are like doo -doo -doo, like gently going around like why would I ever need a helmet <laughs> yeah 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 um but anyway we the the interesting thing with this task was we would call the dogs like in a calm voice okay. and then an excited voice. Uh -huh. um, and we did this um, with the canine companion dogs and then also pet dogs. And it was interesting because what we found is that the canine companions dogs actually did better, right? They were like quicker to get to me and they were less likely to hit the, hit the sheet um, when I called them like more excitedly. Whereas the pet dogs, were great if you called them calmly and then as soon as you got too excited it like sent them over the edge right and they were yep. like even if they just solved it five times they were like oh my gosh you know and, and couldn't solve it um so what was interesting it was like you know the baseline temperament of the dog really seems to matter and like probably this is no surprise to you as a trainer right that the that your 
um, our type of excitement dogs. level yeah. is, is rubbing off on the dog. And so when you say the, when you're telling me the thing about the computer, I mean, I think part of it is, is like, right. Obviously the computer is just more exact in how it yep. can reward, but it's also like without the human it's there, neutral. maybe the dog is just less around, right? Yeah. Like there's, so it makes it easier for them to hold or whatever, which is sort of interesting to think about the implications of that and how that might play into training or, or working and, you know, I well, don't. Well, you're bringing up yeah. a great point. That's the difference many times between the sport dogs that do detection and the professional dogs that do detection. The professional dogs are chosen for their, like I said earlier, their persistence, their levels of motivation, things of that nature. And then our training involved, let's say, takes those components and then throws gasoline on that fire. We want to really get it going. We want to do. Little do we know, many times we are we are over arousing the dog, overstimulating the dog, and reducing one their mental flexibility. But then we are also inhibiting their their impulse control. Versus if we had stayed more, we we already picked a dog that we know has the right motivation. We already picked a dog that inherently wants to do this kind of stuff. Uh, we actually probably many times have to bring it down a little bit. And by doing so, it goes against our nature and it goes against, you know, a lot of years of uh, prior training that all of us that have been doing this a while have been told to do uh, because we were always told, spin the dog up, get him ready, get him excited, you know, and we what we really should have done is, you know, work it calmly. And um, by doing that, we would actually have a stronger, better indication, a dog who searches more effectively than a dog who runs all over the room. Flip side to that is your sport dog who most times are, uh, the, the pet that the person now wants to go do a sport with, this dog may not have the levels of motivation, uh, may not be, it, it takes them a lot more to become not only aroused, but just interested to go do something. And um, so we have to do some things with those dogs that create that level of interest that creates that motivation where they have something to control because if there's no impulse, there's no control. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. if, if that dog that uh, is doing this for the fun or the sport doesn't have whatever it is that really motivates it, um, obviously it's going to have a little bit harder on the impulse control because there's no impulse. Well, yeah. And I think it comes, it comes down to individual differences and sort of, you know, this idea that, that you're talking about where you, you know, what are tests? that we can give the dog to sort of baseline gauge what their learning style is or what their temperament level is, and then kind of tailor the training around that, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this brings up the, one of the last things that me, me and you've talked about before, and we talked about just before we went on air here, which was the value of less is more and understanding, you know, we have always been told many times throughout, uh, education and training that you need reps, you need reps, you need reps. And by more reps means better understanding and better uh, performance of the task. Uh, explain a little bit for this last question, what we have learned about repetition and understanding less is more. Yeah. So, well, I was telling you earlier before we went on air that um, I, I listened to your podcast previously and heard you talking about this in the episode with uh, Lucia and Bart as well. Um, this idea of, right, that you sometimes, uh, re 
the repetition that actually hurts the learning. Um, and I think you actually touched on this in your podcast with Brian, uh, and I am a huge proponent of this, the, the sleeping on it, right? So uh-huh. like the value of kind of spreading things out, letting the dogs sleep on it. I think we see that I sort of opened the podcast talking about um, those warm-up games where we we have to sort of teach it's one of the few things that we actually, I would say, teach in our tasks, right? Where they have to learn whether they're a dog or a puppy, touch the cup, there's food under it, you get the reward. Um, with the puppies, I really feel like, and this is kind of anecdotal, honestly, but like, you know, we often start out and they're like not getting it or, you know, they're just like either don't realize they need to touch the cup or they just always go to the same side or whatever. And it's a disaster. And then we, you know, we're like, okay, we'll try again because that's why we've built it in every over the three days but you know you get a break and they go and they sleep on it and they come back and it's like a light switch has flipped you know yeah <laughs> You're like, yeah we were like are you the same puppy um so and also this idea that brian touched on as well um which i was like oh i wonder so the and we do the idea of playing after you learn something yes and that like kind of positive arousal helping to like cement that and and also instead of like as opposed to like going into something else that's really difficult you know just yep. like the timing of everything or just getting put so away important after that work yes yeah exactly and so i think about that too in terms of our um the cognition testing in that task they have to come back and do the next day of like you know we build in these little like play breaks in between the tasks and like that probably too is helping them consolidate these memories and and learn this task. Um, And yeah, so I think that um, this is something, and I was telling you this, even in humans, right, that we're learning more and more. So like, I think the old sort of knowledge, right, is like, oh, yeah, just read the textbook, repetition, 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 like, when you're studying for a test or something like that. And really, what we're finding is like, that's not that helpful um, you can study for less time, but be more active about it, like do flashcards, and that is going to mm-hmm. um, result in better learning. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the specifics are a little bit different, but that sort of kind of applies universally and, and to dogs as well. So no, for sure. No. So <laughs> I think we've given a people, the, a lot of listeners here, a lot to digest with uh, all these different aspects of what we talked about. And like I've told you earlier when we were talking, I use or these podcasts end up being the seed planting for webinars. And as we were talking, um, I'm just curious, would you be willing to do uh, a webinar uh, or maybe a couple of them actually where we can talk about, um, let's say for lack of a better term, puppy brain games, some of the stuff that (laughs) Uh, people who want to either raise a young dog or those that are breeders, uh, with things that you guys have learned through some of these brain games, is that a, a webinar or something that we could conduct? Yes, definitely. I think that would be a lot of fun. And I was like, I was also thinking of one maybe where, uh, impulse control, you know, one where there's a whole separate one where you spend time talking about, uh, various impulse control games or, uh, you know, how to develop that with the dog. So we've got at least a couple ideas right there. So I would, that's awesome. I would love to do that. And for those listening, when this airs, we will, uh, within a short time after that, uh, 
have some webinars that we will put out and uh, share with you guys because we do definitely know uh, listening to us talk about things is not as easy as seeing it on a video or webinar where you can actually watch what we're talking about and have a connection to the descriptions that we can only do right now uh, by talking about it. So with that said, thank you so much for your time. It was awesome to catch back up with you. It's been a while, obviously, for both of us. Um, thank you so much for your time for for doing this and and uh, kind of giving us the insight because I know you're out. You're one of the main ones out there playing with puppies and helping us. Uh, with this information, how do, when does your, you, you know, you said you're still doing the research. Um, at what stage or are you and when will some stuff get published? Yeah. So we have a couple papers out um, this year that basically go over the early emerging cognition in the puppies. So the stuff that I was talking about where we find like they can follow points, which is really exciting. Uh, and then the, the longitudinal part where we talk about the longitudinal stability. Um, so that those papers are out. Um, and then we have another one under review right now. So they're mm -hmm. kind of trickling out, but they're hopefully um, soon we'll have more on the, we haven't done the last piece, which is sort of the predictive part, just because we're waiting for the outcomes. Sure. Um, so yeah. What's the best way for if people have questions or they want to get links to these studies, what's the easiest way to get a hold of you so they can ask these questions, get this information? Sure. I think probably my website. So emilyebray.com. And you can, there's different uh, pages you can look through. So I have all my publications up with uh, PDFs of the articles. Um, and then there's also my contact information on there. Um, so they could email me. Okay. Um, and that's just E-M-I-L-Y-E-B-R-A-Y.com? Correct. Okay. Yes. And like you said, they can go right there, read some of that stuff, contact you directly. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited. Thank you again for having me on the podcast and with the webinars. I was literally just talking about this uh, with my coworker, Laura Douglas, the other day. Um, so she has a background in special education and service dog training, but then has recently joined our research team at Canine Companion. And she's always, you know, obviously super interested in the findings and saying like, oh, I need to tell, you know, all of my trainer friends. But this idea that, um, you know, it's, it's hard, like there's sometimes a disconnect, right? Like there's like a paywall with the papers or, or even when reading the papers, it's kind of honestly a little bit dry. Or, you yeah, know? no, I get um, it. So I feel like there's, there is like this need for communication, right, between the researchers and then the, the trainers, um, because, you know, it's science is a work in progress. So not only am I happy to share in the hopes of like, it can actually be applied um, to what you guys are doing, but also to get feedback like maybe there's something else we should be looking at, right? Or we should be thinking about it this way. So oh, yeah, no, and I'm that's, excited. That's it's one of the things that I always think to myself is like, there's so much we know, there's so much we think we know, there's so much we don't know, and then there's so much still to learn. And yes. and that what we know changes. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it's so hard because it's human nature to want to. Um, stick to a belief or I'm going with this because of that or to 
Um, you know, and the, and the great thing about science is it's always good to the whole, a lot of times science is to find how can we be better? You know, like, like Brian said in the podcast with him, it, it isn't about being right or wrong. It's where, where's the truth in this? And sometimes, you know, what we thought was true, we end up from a different point of view or a different way of testing something, discover, oh, well, that wasn't the case. Meanwhile, those of us that are, I would call the practitioners or the dog handlers, we're like, we get, we get confused because, you know, you have your, the, the various camps that are like, oh, this study told us this. And then the next study in people have heard my podcast with Nathan and, you know, the, the joke of today, caffeine is the greatest thing for you. Next week, caffeine's going to kill you, you know, and uh, <laughs> I, I played a joke. There, there was a video from, uh, I forget what it was on Netflix, but it was, you know, the, uh, the research or the, it was an army general, Steve Carell was playing and he was like, in a room with a bunch of researchers, and the guy was like, "There's this, this, this." He's like, "Which one is it?" And he goes, "Well, it's hard to say because science is always evolving." And, da, da, da. and he's like, "Ugh," you know. <laughs> and I think a lot of us feel that that "ugh" aspect because yeah. <laughs> you know we always want this definitive answer, and we, at the end of the day, we deal with a dog, and the dog is not able to communicate to us uh, everything it's thinking or feeling, and or, or what yeah. it's understanding. And so all mm-hmm. we can do is keep learning, keep trying Mm -hmm. to develop things, be open-minded that there's potentially another option. Um, Nobody has the right answer. There's nothing wrong with sticking to what you do. If it works for you and it's working for your dog, then Mm -hmm. you don't need to change it because Cameron talks about some amazing study that says the opposite of what you did. (laughs) Um, It's, you know, I, I want people to understand that though I... Yeah. And there's lots of individual differences. Yeah. And and though I have things that I will pull from that I like or research that um, I'm either passionate about or that I've seen, I I, I don't want to take away uh, from some of the things that have just been something that's tried and true. And, And for that person or that dog, it works. And there's great value in that too. So Despite all of us that are really geeky and we really get into <laughs> all kinds of, you know, data collection and we we all will definitely agree that there's a lot of ways that we can get results and we all at the end of the day just want to find can we be better at what we do and can we be better with our dogs? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, thank you again very much and for those that are listening We thank you for your support. We thank you for your questions. Always feel free to reach out to me at Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D-K, the number nine dot com. So Cameron at Ford K nine dot com. Send me your questions. Send me your comments on the podcast. Give us a thumbs up or a like or give us a rating on the various podcast formats you listen to. And thank you for listening to this episode of Canines Talking Sense where it's okay to be nosy.